Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, how might we respond to technological unemployment? So we're back to the topic of technological unemployment. Yeah, we can't really stay away from this topic long. Well, because of all the future topics, this one feels much more like the near future. Uh, it's fun to talk about the killer AI scenarios, etc. Right. But uh, this one feels like it might be approaching reality. It hits a little sooner. closer to home. Yeah. Yeah. So technological unemployment, if you're not familiar with the concept, is when changes in technology lead to structural unemployment, whether that's by machines directly replacing humans or whether that's just machines in some more indirect fashion, reducing the need for human labor in certain industries. Right. I just want to mention that we went over what technological unemployment is and if we should be worried about it in our second podcast. Uh, so you can check that out. We'll have a link to it at the bottom of the page. But today we want to talk about all the responses that we can think of to the problem of technological unemployment. If you accept our basic argument that technological unemployment is something we, we maybe should worry about, then I think it's the n logical next thing to, to discuss is, uh, well, what should we do if technological unemployment uh, starts to become a reality? What kinds of interventions or policies could we institute? But before we do that, I do want to discuss a couple defeaters to this argument that I think maybe don't get discussed enough. The traditional argument against technological unemployment is the Luddite fallacy, which we've covered before. And I don't think that that is a very useful one. But I think there are a couple other ways in which technological unemployment either won't occur or just it might occur, but might not matter. So I want to quickly go through those defeaters first. So the first possibility is, is the idea that the bounty, the, the great things that technology provides might sort of outrun the spread, which is the inequality that technology is generating or seems to be generating at the same time. Right. If the rising tide lifts all boats high enough, it's not going to matter if there's very great inequality because everyone's quality of life will just be uh, so much better. So that's a possibility. So we might not have jobs, but if we have robots that are taking care of us and, and performing our health services and building houses for us, then that might not be such a bad life, right? Right. It's possible that uh, that this just doesn't become a problem uh, in, a, in a world like that. But that's more of a question of timing, because if we don't get some of these technological benefits soon enough, and we still live in a world where, you know, your living is tied to jobs, then that, of course, is a really bad interim period that we might have to worry about. Right. We don't know how long it's going to take to get from here to there, even if there is a place that we are going to get to. And so it's possible that we'd have problems in the interim no matter what. Uh, the next uh, defeater that we should talk about is the possibility of education or even more extreme than traditional education, cognitive enhancement of some kind, chemical or, or mechanical, outrunning the current changing demands uh, for skills. So basically, as technological progress accelerates, we have you know, new, better machines that need different skills to be run. And perhaps we can educate people better using technology and perhaps we can actually upgrade your minds using either drugs or or uh, microchips or uh, nanobots in the brain or something like that. And if we can do those things, then maybe we can develop those skills faster than humans can develop skills now. And thereby, those people who want to compete would actually be able to compete and, and do a lot of jobs that are you know impossible to imagine now because they, they require such complicated skills that we couldn't acquire. Right, because a lot of unemployment is fundamentally a retraining problem. People lose one type of job, and then there is maybe another type of job for them, but they have to get those skills, and then they, of course, have to obtain those skills 
quickly enough to keep up with changing technology. Right. And that's where the real trouble is because it's so slow to teach humans new skills now. What's needed may change faster than you can teach them. And I think some of the promising trends in education that could help this problem are obviously online education, which is bringing education that's cheaper to more people, social networks, which are hopefully going to do a better and better job of connecting the right people with the right jobs. And something that we don't have yet, but that I think is sort of promising on the horizon is using augmented reality to... Oh, yeah, for instantaneous training, right? To educate people on the fly right. as you're doing something. As you're doing something, you're getting uh, audio and visual cues through like uh, Google Glass type technology, and you can um, learn something by doing it. And this will be great for people who learn kinesthetically. They'll be able to learn the way that they learn best. That'll uh, open up a lot of skills for a lot of people. So, for example, if you were working on a car and your glasses were overlaying on the parts of the car, uh, labels of what they are, and arrows were pointing to the places you needed to put your hands. Right. If you had put into the AI assistant what you were doing on the car, uh, it probably even would be able to light up the uh, the wrench that you should be using and the bolt that you want to use it on right in your in your vision, so that you'd know you know which which thing to work on. That's uh, that's a really interesting educational model that's completely unavailable now that might be available soon. Yeah, looks like it's definitely feasible and might happen soon. So the third defeater that we're going to talk about is, is some combination of sort of two kind of different ideas that we think would be uh, tied together. One of those ideas is new demands that are elastic, independent demands that people have for things that I think would be largely intangible, like attention, status, belonging, potential. And then the other one is new platforms, maybe uh, crowdsourced or peer-to-peer platforms that would allow people to monetize some of these intangible things in a way that wasn't really possible before. There's, there's a lot of examples. Of and this. what's special about these intangible things, and we did uh, a whole episode on them about you know, what things will stay scarce, is that you know, things like attention and status can't be automated away. So they're fundamentally immune to technological unemployment. For example, attention is limited by time, so unless we can generate more time... Right. Uh, You can only basically pay attention to one thing at a time. So even if all of your time is completely free, that's still going to limit the number of things that you can pay attention to in a day. Because of that, there's always going to be a market for people's attention. And if you can capture people's attention, you'll be able to monetize that attention, whether it's through advertising or some other means. Right. And the way attention works now is that everybody usually pays attention to one uh, major outlet, like let's say Google search, and then that Google search takes your attention and monetizes that and sells that to advertisers. And it all kind of goes through this middleman. But you could imagine that using peer-to-peer markets, you could have some sort of attention economy where I could sell space on my t-shirt that's an augmented t-shirt and so on. Things that, you know, are actually really hard to imagine, but just because we can't imagine them doesn't mean that there's some, isn't some model that could keep the current economy going and keep people working. So we're just raising this as one possible defeater that could prevent technological unemployment from really becoming a problem. That's if we discover a new economy to replace our current you know, manufacturing and service and sort of information economy. That well, we these platforms would allow you to, to plug uh, these, these new desires into the old economy, and they might uh, operate at a, a really different scale, like they might be working on micropayments or something like that. But you could definitely imagine some combination of a Kickstarter-like crowdfunding platform or a more like Mechanical Turk-style platform that breaks tasks up into little parts or even something like uh, along the lines of the autonomous corporation idea that uh, has been kicked around, which um, seems like it's a way of people getting together and using their 
their capital, their computers, basically, to work for them in a way that's similar to the way a, a large organization that owns a lot of capital works but is distributed. All of those ideas allow you to potentially charge actual money dollars, you know, regular money for things that are right now kind of intangible and hard to sell. And so maybe that is enough to uh, replace all of the people who uh, used to be in service or manufacturing jobs who are going to get automated out of their work. But you'd have to imagine the economy in things like attention and status would have to become much, much larger than it is today, which is not impossible, but it's it's a, a little bit hard to fully wrap my mind around. So yeah, all these defeaters are interesting to talk about, but we're not feeling super confident that they're going to get us out of this problem quickly enough. Yeah, quickly enough. I think it, given enough time, all these things seem reasonable to have some impact, but I think they might not come quickly enough to head off some of the uh, effects that we expect to see from long-term uh, skill bias, uh, technical change. A large percentage of jobs right now uh, are, are right on the cusp. Are right seems. on the cusp of yep. being automated. So this stuff better come quick if it's going to come. But anyway, so if we're actually facing this problem of technological unemployment, let's finally now get to the solutions. Right. Absent those defeaters, assuming that those things don't happen, or at least don't happen quickly enough, uh, what could we do to try to intervene? And there's basically three major categories, we think, of what we can do. So what do you think the the first thing is? Uh, So the first one is not that palatable to most people, I think, but it might become a reality, at least in some small form. And that is varying degrees of recidivism, basically saying, well, technology is the source of this problem. So one logical, although maybe not good solution would be to push back against technology, to limit certain types of technology that are automating away jobs. I think the most extreme end is you would say freeze technology at a certain point, you'd take kind of an Amish approach and and pick a certain level of technology and, and stick with that. I don't think that that is ever going to happen uh, worldwide or even countrywide. But I think that, you know, smaller versions of this might get suggested, you know, incentivizing businesses, say, to use humans over machines. That kind of proposal, while it sounds sort of positive and pro-human, is, can also be seen as somewhat anti-technology. Right, that's just a sort of mild recidivism and uh, banning certain kinds of technology or certain kinds of research is another kind of recidivism, you know, walking away from powerful technologies while keeping other technologies that we find are less powerful. The real extreme version of this is Bill Joy, right? Who is uh, a, oh, yes. a futurist who uh, we'll link to. And he, he for, sort of his famously... His essay was what? The future will n- doesn't need us? Is, is that his is essay? Is that the name of it? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll have to look it up. He uh, is somebody who uh, came on the futurism scene around the same time as Kurzweil and basically bought his conclusions, but uh, had a really different point of view about them, which is he's not optimistic about the future for humanity at all. He really very strongly thinks that uh, we're headed for extinction. And he does uh, ultimately advocate a kind of recidivism that's pretty thoughtful, but that I ultimately disagree with and I think is is really dooming a lot of people to, to unnecessary suffering. And of course, the, the Unabomber, I think, is another famous the recidivist Unabomber philosopher. Unabomber is another famous recidivist. Obviously, we disapprove of his methods, but I also disagree with his point of view. I think uh, the technology is not, at the end of the day, the problem, and we do have uh, some cultural control over what our technology does. You know, I think it's just really strange to love work so much that you would doom humans to drudgery in order to save it as a concept. <laughs> right. I, yeah, we're, we've become really attached to work, but uh, as we've argued before, work should be seen as a means to an end, not an end in itself. So if, if work is, you know, in the sense of wage labor is is destined to go away, then we should let it go away and, and keep moving forward with technology. Because right. as I- we talked about earlier... 
once that technological bounty gets big enough, this won't necessarily be the problem that we fear it is. Right. And it's maybe important to point out, we don't need to uh, promote idleness just to uh, get rid of wage labor. We can promote entrepreneurship. We can promote study. We can promote play. We can promote things that lead to breakthroughs. We just don't necessarily need to have people uh, stuck in the wage labor cycle. And uh, so anyway, the next thing that we could do if we wanted to try to uh, respond to technological unemployment, and we certainly are doing a certain amount of this already, is that we could institute artificial scarcity regimes of various kinds. Yeah. And I think this needs a little bit of background in the sense that this world of technological unemployment where machines are replacing humans is almost by definition also what you could call a world of abundance. It's a world where we have a lot of goods at a very, very low price. Or specifically human labor, which used to be very scarce because you could only get so much work out of a human, has become uh, abundant in many cases because once the computer can do the same labor good enough, then uh, you can run that computer basically nonstop forever. And its marginal cost uh, after you buy the the computer is is like practically nothing. So that drastically changes very quickly the amount of supply of that kind of labor. And of course, demand might catch up, but it may have a lag or it might not be able to catch up at all. There might be a, a finite or diminishing demand for that kind of labor, depending on what it is. Well, and let's let's break this up in, into into goods on the one hand and labor on the other, because they they would involve slightly different artificial scarcity proposals, sure. I think. So on the good side, we have this digitization of everything that's right. going on. We've already seen this, you know, most noticeably with media, with movies and music and games and those things that are just now digital files. Right. And so what protects those in the marketplace is what we're calling artificial scarcity, but what's more commonly known as intellectual property. Right. Intellectual property and its instantiation in software. Like copyrights, patents, things of that nature. Right. Yeah. Also digital rights management, which is an attempt uh, on the creator side to just technologically prevent copying. Yeah. And those things are necessary in order to make those goods monetizable because ostensibly if people could just copy them freely, then they wouldn't pay for them, or at least that's part of the theory. So that's one type of artificial scarcity that we're already doing. And we could massively expand that we could um, to the point that every digital object that we create whether that's a forum post or a photo uploaded to facebook is is very is is not just protected because i think those things already are protected by a copyright yeah copyright's uh, already brought automatically automatically it, it does protect but they could stuff. be protected by the actual structure of the network or or in such a way that say people get compensated for the right the, they could be managed they could have their own rights management built into them that would uh enforce as long as everybody in the world was using a compatible system it would enforce every use of these little bites of the information that we're producing i guess to um be counted and and therefore we could be paid for them in in a system maybe not too unlike how compulsory licensing works on radio or something now right where uh you don't necessarily control every interaction uh that happens but you get you know a micro payment for it this is the idea that's put forth by uh jaron lanier in his um incredibly frustrating book who owns the future yeah, we're not a big fan of this idea, but... We find this to be like a draconian nightmare. I mean, I can't imagine... Well, the imagine enforcement of it is... The enforcement of it would be um, not well nigh impossible, but let's, let's assume for a moment that you actually figured out how to enforce it. It would involve criminalizing virtually any kind of tampering with your device. You'd, you wouldn't be allowed to have a general computing device anymore that you could program yourself. You would have to be in a circumscribed system that uh, supported these 
these restrictions. Because these devices would have to obey uh, certain standards in yeah. order to and they'd have to track virtually every bite yeah. that goes in and out. So, the, you know, the possibility for abuse on a you know centralized system. Let's say it's run by a private company, not even the government. That's you know charged with paying out on all of these microbytes. It's just astronomical. I mean, there's no way that given what we know about our spy agencies now that they could uh, resist taking all this information and knowing literally everything everyone does or says. It's crazy. I mean, it, it would be such a crazy giant unmanageable right. system. And on, on the surface, I mean, I, I get why the goal seems desirable, you know, to take all these amateurs that are producing content on the internet, uh, some of which is, you know, a lot of love and effort is put into and find some way to, to compensate people for that. Although I think Jaron Lanier takes it even more extreme when he says that like just your face passing in front of a camera is, is training a face recognition algorithm and therefore you should get a piece of that value just because you walked somewhere. Um, he goes even more extreme. So we're not even really talking about, you know, lovingly created work. But, I, I, you know, the idea that maybe people should be compensated for these contributions it's very romantic and nice on the surface. It's just when you get into like, how do you actually execute that? I don't see any way forward with this. No, it's, it's just totally insane. If you really wanted to compensate everybody for their contributions to culture at large, like by walking in front of cameras and stuff, then it would make more sense to just uh, socialize everything. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's so crazy. Uh, if you to, just want everybody to to have a share of the wealth, uh, yeah, socialism is a much more direct way of doing this. It's a lot more this. efficient way of doing that if that's really what you want to do. But I think he's not being... He yeah. wants to create a market system of some kind, but this is such a... Um, but the fact is that the market... Tortured way to do it. Right. The, the actual market system, you know, wouldn't value all these little useless bits of information because they're actually not of any value until they get turned into that facial recognition algorithm. And somebody's hardware is running that and somebody's uh, software is, is creating that. And obviously those are the people who are going to extract value. So it, it's just such a foolish idea and it really just seems to completely misunderstand how uh, the world works. But it's not the only uh, type of artificial scarcity that we can talk about. It's not just goods. We can also talk about um, labor as um, a kind of good that uh, that requires us artificial scarcity protection. Right. So this is like uh, the short work week in Germany is an example of this. Right, because we're going to have an abundance of labor if everybody's out of work and there's not that many jobs left, then you have way more labor than you need. Right, and so well, even you if can... you just have a few more people out of work in this system because everyone has to work to live... If yeah, you, well, it even doesn't if have you, to be everyone. Yeah, yeah. You just a large just number. Just a number, a large number more of more unemployment than we have now. By, out of, by out a few of work, points, honestly, uh, would um, create a real slack in the labor market and and really bring down the cost of labor. So one thing you can do to stop that, and and they've tried this in Germany, is uh, you can have the government regulate such that uh, certain kinds of jobs uh, have shorter work weeks. And uh, this could be taken to a more extreme place. I mean, we could literally. You know, we have a five-day work week in America now. We could have a four-day work week for everyone. We could just say Fridays are off for everybody from now on. That would reduce economic output, probably, but it would also create Might more force work. hiring of more people. Yeah, and that's something that we can do maybe in the very short term. Although, again, it doesn't seem like a very good idea long term because it's going to reduce economic output, reduce innovation, and uh, uh, have have negative long-term growth uh, consequences, well, I think. Well, it seems like it would. I guess we wouldn't know for sure. I don't know. Uh, you said that in Germany, I don't know what kind of results they've had 
there with respect. Relatively good, but it's pretty limited, I think. And I think that's the way that it could work. If you limited if you, in terms of the industries that they're applying correct. that in. Yeah, they're yeah. not they're not forcing everyone to do it. They're forcing um, industries to do it that they could show reasonably could could make it happen. Well, then there's also early retirement is a way to do this too. So if you're not, and I've heard it argued that that is maybe uh, in some ways better because then you're not you know parsing the work week a bunch of different ways and forcing the management and oversight and training of more simultaneous employees. Right. right. Um, You're also not taking our country off the world's schedule. And I I mean, yeah, yeah. it it, it seems like it'd be better to enable more early retirement. And that can be done a a couple of different ways. One way they can do it is by expanding the existing social safety net. For example, there was, you know, there was a report out pretty recently saying that the CBO is saying that uh, the the Affordable Care Act is going to cause a, a, a small amount of people who are between, you know, 62 and 67 to uh, to quit their jobs or retire from their jobs early because they can now get health insurance uh, in that interim time before Medicare kicks in for them. And so that's going to that's going to create a little bit of slack in the in the labor market. Now, I, I would say that my personal bias definitely is against these types of proposals, really for the same reason that the, the artificial scarcity bugs me and even that the recidivism bugs me, which is that it's sort of just creating, I mean, if, if the goal is to move forward and, and push innovation and, you know, over time increase the bounty, then this just seems to get in the way potentially. I mean, for employers to have to, it's just one more thing for them to worry about. You know, you're, here's your best worker. Uh, you can't, you know, have them work X number of days. It's got to be X minus one number of days. And you can't keep them on past a certain age because, you know, earlier retirement incentives are going to cause them to leave or whatever. However you set this up. It seems like it's it's limiting the ability of an employer and an employee to work together and and produce output, like you said. So right, it's limiting the choice of both parties, which I don't like, and it's also potentially a bad idea from a nationalistic perspective. If you're looking at policy as national policy, it'd be one thing if this was worldwide, but uh, we are competing with other countries. And if we did uh, have early retirement, like as more of a mandated thing, yeah. then those people would all move out of the U.S. Right to right, keep they working. Could, they could go elsewhere. Exactly. Or I that's mean, one way it could go. That's one way it could go. Or the more likely thing that would happen is people would just take the early retirement, and the country's output would go you know relatively lower to other countries. Which uh, I, I wouldn't support that. Uh, I think that's a bad idea. You know, on the one hand, um, if it's an consequence of a better social safety net that some people uh, choose to retire early, that's fine. But if it's reducing the choice of people, if you're doing something like mandating early retirement or mandating shorter work weeks, I think that's a a real mistake. Also, there are some jobs that uh, break up uh, easily. And those jobs... Um, right. Certain industries, I think, can handle this much better, for and, and sure. And there are other jobs that really it would, it would det- be detrimental to them to try to force people to because you need that same person with that same knowledge and training like you know sometimes yeah for a while sometimes to Some, actually get the most benefit out of them right and sometimes they just need to be on the same schedule that the rest of the world's on yeah um and again if you're not doing this everywhere it would be uh i think disruptive so yeah these artificial scarcity ideas i can see them having some value in the short term i think for the most part they're dangerous and whether it's uh artificial scarcity of goods or artificial scarcity of labor i think either way you're setting, you're building walls, or you're taking away workers, and and neither of those things are pushing us further toward this abundant future where the technology is is doing the work for everyone. That sounds like a much better place to be than where we are now. So the let's move on now to sure. the the third type of solution. We covered one recidivism, two artificial scarcity, and the third one is a pretty big category, which we're calling expanded safety nets. 
So this is one way to address the problem of people not working, which is that, you know, work is how they're supposed to meet their needs. So if they can't work, they can't meet their needs. And so we can maybe help them with a safety net. And we right. already we can, do this. We you can know? try to meet their needs other ways. And right, we already do this. Um, in the Western world, there's a pretty standard safety net that's set up to try to help people who are disabled or old or very poor and disadvantaged. And basically, that system, as we've seen recently, uh, cannot take intense stress. If we had persistent 10% unemployment, our existing safety net would break down. So if technological unemployment really does happen and is something to worry about, and we do have long-term unemployment or long-term low labor force participation, then we're going to need something to do. And there's a real spectrum of solutions here, ranging from the most sort of market-oriented to the most sort of communistic or socialistic. And, uh, right. So the, I think the most open and, uh, and market-friendly uh, proposal is the guaranteed basic income. Right. And there's various versions of this. Some people call it negative income tax, but we're thinking of any version of a guaranteed basic income as meeting uh, the basic you know, category requirement, what we're talking about here. All that is, is it's essentially just diagnosing the problem of poverty as being people lack money and then giving them money one way or another. Somehow just giving people money in exchange for nothing. Now, obviously, some people have a knee-jerk negative reaction to that idea, but I think it actually warrants a lot of thought because the studies that have been done in the places that they've done it, such as Brazil, have found that um, it, it works really well. Uh, and it turns out that you know most poor people are not stupid. They don't make bad decisions. They just are poor. And the problem is that they don't have money to buy the things that they need. They know what they need and they know how to spend the money. And so when you give them some money, it makes their lives better. Um, right. Because below a certain threshold, it's really hard to pull yourself out. Right. I mean, that's why, like, you know, if you give somebody change on the street, it might make that day slightly better for them. But it's not like they're going to use that to, to go pull themselves out of poverty. Whereas if you could give people a certain amount of money, right? Um, it, 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 this might also help social mobility because they would have that, that basic foundation with which to participate. Right. If you know you're not going to become homeless, then you can take a risk and start a business. You can take uh, a, an amount of time and teach yourself a skill. You can take advantage of the kinds of things that we were talking about earlier when we were talking about possible defeaters for technological unemployment. You know, Even if those things don't become a full economy that replaces our current economy, they'll definitely lead to some opportunities for some people. And with expanded social safety nets, people would have the chance to try for those spots. And even those who failed, they wouldn't starve because they would have enough money ostensibly from the guaranteed basic income to pay for basic necessities such as food and, and shelter. Right. And this is money that's not tied to any qualifications. It's unconditional. That means rich people would get this too. Although, you know, it, for them, it would hardly matter. Well, um, it would end up being clawed back in taxes, probably. Most likely, yeah. But they would get the same check. But so everybody would, no administration yeah. cost whatsoever for this. That's the thing about it is it, it just becomes, it becomes the simplest kind of government program where you can literally just authorize everyone uh, all at once, and that's it. And you don't, you know, you don't track how they spend it. I mean, that's the thing is you just have to accept that people will spend it how they spend it, and you have to trust that most people, you know, have their own best interest in mind and will do a decent job of that. Right. It's it's because of that completely unpaternalistic attitude that this thing represents that I think you'll have some opposition to it. And I would think that for the people who fall through the cracks of a GBI who, you know, take the money and spend it all on drugs or whatever, private charity would uh, fill in the gap. And obviously, part of making a GBI work in this country would also have to You'd have to take into consideration our mental health system and you'd have to make sure that people who are too crazy to take advantage of 
this situation can get some care. Right. This but, does not solve the problems with drugs and or mental health no, that we already have. Those, so. those problems are just sort of separate from the problem of poverty, I think, uh, although they're often lumped in together. And I think uh, for all the many people who are poor, not because they are mentally ill or addicted to drugs, but for, or at least not primarily because of those reasons, this would uh, get them out of their current situation. And, uh, you know, I could see why people would maybe want something closer to what we do now, right? So what we do now is, um, is we use a combination of means testing and vouchers to have a more paternalistic social safety net. So we could just expand that. And uh, that's uh, something that's being uh, discussed in the mainstream political circles. There's a book out um, called Social Democratic America. I forget the author, but I'll uh, put a link to it in the post. And, you know, it's a book that's being taken very seriously as a uh, left-wing policy document. And I looked at it and it uh, it dismisses the basic income out of hand, says, you know, a kind of boring and pointless to refute argument about you know, work being important. Uh, but doesn't back that up with anything. And then it moves on to talk about how we should expand Medicare, expand you know our existing welfare programs, expand our infrastructure investments, and uh, expand our uh, earned income tax right. credit, all of which are basically the same idea. They're expanding the social safety net, so that's why they're in the same category. But they're doing this this much more complicated way, and right. they're doing it where it, most of these programs are targeted at one need. You know, they're not. It's not here's a bunch of money, cover your own needs, you sort it out. It's here's uh, food something or housing for health or education or, yes. or health care, you know, compartmentalized and analyzed and bureaucratized, you know, <laughs> and like and the thing is, the, 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 on the other side, the, the thing to say, I think, in, in, in defense of something like this is that these are all existing programs with existing bureaucracies that are going to fight like hell to survive. And realistically, we're not going to get rid of them their, anytime soon right? by expanding their purview. Uh, you actually align yourself with their interests in a way that might allow you to get uh, their support. And so I can see from a from a political, pragmatic point of view, you might want to support something like this. My issue with it is that even though this is the most sort of radical and extreme version of this that's come out in the mainstream politics, I don't think it's nearly enough. I don't think, I think if we were to see the kind of persistent, you know, technological unemployment problems that we're, we're expecting, you couldn't possibly expand Medicare and Medicaid and Ob- Obamacare and uh, the other um, alphabet soup programs enough to make it work. There will be so many people who'd fall through the cracks who would not be a family and would not be starving to death, let's say, not so not available, you know, on f- to get food stamps and but would need assistance. Yeah. Um, so it's, and so much is lost in inefficiency, I think, in having all these different programs, which is frustrating. But as you said, like they're, you know, they're kind of here to stay because they're incentivized to sort of preserve their own existence. And all the government employees there, I assume, don't want to lose their jobs either. But the amount of uh, work that goes into running all these different programs is basically just lost. Uh, right. Well, and, and nowadays, because there's been um, a significant push to privatize a lot of this stuff, it's not just government employees, it's also private contractors, and yeah. that's very opaque as well. So you have... And all the people that can't understand it, right? Worst, like, all the worst qualities of both a government bureaucracy and a private monopoly, I think, operating at once uh, with a lot of efficiency loss... And so, you know, maybe that efficiency loss, again, is a kind of artificial scarcity keeping people employed. Um, it's true. It's one but, source of jobs. But I, like, would much prefer to see that money saved and uh, uh, put directly into people's pockets for them to take care of their own needs. And, you know, going along this spectrum, moving from sort of the most right-wing 
uh, version of a safety net to the sort of current centrist version that we have, thinking about that expanding, then you could, of course, go further to the left and just start direct provisioning. And that would be very hard to institute in America. So I don't even want to speculate as to how that would happen in America, except if uh, Amazon decided to to start doing it. Um, I can't imagine any other way. Uh, but uh, be, yeah, some coalition of wealthy be, entrepreneurs and nonprofits or something yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, might um, do it. But uh, in China, I think they might just start doing this. So in China, they're starting to see technological unemployment uh, for the first time. Their, their factory workers are going down while their uh, amount of robots in factories are going way up. And if they get to a point there where people just aren't making enough to buy the goods that, that the factories are making, Chinese government is in a position where they could just buy up that stuff directly. They set the prices already and then just give it to people who they decide uh, want it or need it or, uh, or deserve it. And so uh, we might see that, I think, uh, direct provisioning of that sort. And an even further left uh, version of that right. uh, we've seen <laughs> talked about on the internet uh, at, at great length is this sort of automation socialism or resource-based economy idea. Well, and, and to be to clarify here, the resource-based economy, which is the creation of this guy Jacques Fresco, and I don't believe that they would want to refer to themselves as automation socialism. So we might be lumping them in that category uh, against the will of the people who created this idea. But yeah. I don't not sure how else to describe their idea. I've read a lot of their literature and it sounds like essentially a socialist system, but one that's enabled by automation. And that is an important distinction because it's technologically enabled and it's like autonomous right it's almost like an anarchist method at, of of achieving socialism isn't it like well i like the way i like to think of it is that the the automation addresses some of the traditional concerns about socialism right. such as uh, worker incentives, for example. How do we incentivize people to work when they can't actually improve their yeah, station? That doesn't matter if it's not people If working. it's a robot, the robot doesn't care. It just does what you tell it to. Right. Or, um, you know, the problem of uh, sort of setting prices centrally. You know, if you had some artificial intelligence and some really uh, smart machines working on that problem as basically your s replacement for your central authority, right. uh, that might actually stand a chance of doing close to as good a job as the decentralized market does. Right, or if you have robots building enough stuff and there's no scarcity of things, then you can simply directly provision them and you don't need to bother setting any prices. Well, then you don't have to be worried about as efficiency as much. If you have enough of an abundance, even if it's... Right. It's right. less efficient reached, to uh, right. directly provision it, then maybe, you, you know, maybe that's just a loss that's acceptable at that point. Exactly. Yeah. Because at that point, you've got excess production, so it doesn't actually matter. Right. Yeah. And, and so uh, these are a really extreme, somewhat futuristic visions. They're not 100% attainable with today's technology, let's say, although they do look like something that might be possible in the future. The question for me about stuff like this is how does it get organized? And, you know, short of uh, bloody revolution... I don't have an answer to that. They're not uninteresting ideas, though. And uh, whether or not the people who came up with them would, would classify them as left-wing or socialist at all, they, I think, mark the least market-oriented and the most sort of technologically-oriented version of an expanded safety net. And in that case, we're essentially expanding the safety net to include the entirety of what used to be called the economy. So it's not, at this point, it's pretty much a, a, almost a, a different solution because at the market and, and what we might call capitalism really definitely doesn't even exist even remotely at this point of the spectrum. I and mean, we're talking about essentially a completely socialist organization of society. Right, uh, right. Uh, and one that 
perhaps in some of these formulations would occur without the kind of central authority of a totalitarian government, but instead through like a sort of collection of anarchist uh, sort of Well, see, that's, our, that's almost another axis, though, because like how, how you administrate something like this is really you could do it uh, in an anarchist fashion. You could do it in some sort of democratic fashion. You could do it in a very top down fashion. Uh, so I almost feel like that's almost its own issue. Right. But, Exactly. Uh, and I think that we'll see stuff like this possibly in the very much further future. I mean, what, and the thing is that for this to really well, be easy, even, it needs really much, much better technology than we have now. And, right. and then I think I could see independent collections of people around the world, some of them setting up essentially their own little utopian societies that are enabled by some of these technologies. But, you know, we're so far from that that it almost seems pointless to talk about this. Right. Well, I, it's definitely further in the future than, uh, like, if you were going to try to set something like this up now, it would have to look a lot more like traditional socialism, I think, with uh, some and version of central political planning. obstacles to that are, are so difficult. Right. And the sort of state violence and such that, that generally comes with such a such a project with the central planning because you can't you'd have to have you have to enforce it you'd have to essentially have a team of engineers working on this problem of how best to distribute resources and uh you got to worry that those team of engineers are going to be bought and sold and you know exhibit you know power hungry behavior and all the things that humans often do when they are uh, you know put in charge of things so it's you know a real concern i think and you know it might not be that different from today (laughs) In that sense that, you know, we'd still have, you know, corrupt elites, but it's so different from now, at least how we have things set up in this country that I don't see us getting there, just practically speaking. Right. Well, the corruption in this country operates in such a different way and has such different strengths and weaknesses than the corruption in a setup like that would have. I just, yeah, I don't see us uh, transferring from one style to another without uh, horrible violence. So I think that basically wraps up our three types of solutions. So we're looking at, you know, we can walk away from technology or ban it. We can do recidivism. Or we can institute some kind of artificial scarcity to try to lock down the digital world and make it more like the world that we used to have, more limited and therefore more able to be monetized. Or we can accept that fewer things are going to be Obtainable through obtainable work. Through, through, monetary, right, through work and, uh, and fewer things are going to be tradable for money as work. And therefore, we can expand social safety nets, whether in a, in a market-friendly way, like giving people money, or in a semi-market-friendly way, like giving people food vouchers and having means-tested welfare, or in a market-unfriendly way, like basically just saying, well, you know, whatever is scarce can be part of the market and everything else we're going to essentially socialize. Now, I think we, we've already editorialized a lot. I don't actually have a completely set opinion about this stuff, but definitely, I think I'm leaning towards some sort of basic income scheme seems like of the things that we just listed, you know, there might be other solutions that we haven't thought of. And, but of the things that we just talked about, that to me seems like the, the most preferable option. But it also seems like something, if I'm actually predicting what I think will happen, right. uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I see, like we talked about, just sort of an expansion of the safety nets we already have, which means the sort of convoluted means testing programs and and voucher programs. Right. Well, and I see that combined with additional artificial scarcity regimes. Yes. Which will be instituted at great expense and will probably not work very well because I don't think we'll actually get to the draconian enforcement uh, reality that we'd need to for them to work really well. So they'll exist and they'll definitely create markets, but those will be weird, leaky markets 
where some of them are really badly affected by things like piracy or lack of demand, and well, we some already, of them aren't. Yeah. You know, when we already have so much artificial scarcity, it's uh, you know I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to grow that to maintain program and grow it yep. rather than dis- start to dismantle it, which, which is, makes more sense. Which I would it. prefer the latter yeah. personally, but uh, I don't think I don't see that as actually happening. No, I don't think that that's in the immediate cards. It seems like we'll expand that and we'll expand our social safety net to some degree, and uh, we'll probably not do very much in the way of recidivism. Nor do I expect in the United States uh, any direct provisioning or, honestly, uh, the sensible uh, basic income option, which I really think uh, might be a way to kind of please everyone if we can, uh, su- you know, sort of frame it the right way. Because on the one hand, it's a way to increase the efficiency of what the government does and reduce its total size, reduce its bureaucratic footprint. Which is something conservatives could be behind. Could if be behind. It was and it really, does ex- it really does promote market dynamics, which is something else that conservatives tend to like. Now, uh, you know, in America, liberals tend to also like market dynamics, but they also tend to like helping poor people. And I think dollar for dollar, this would actually help poor people the most of any possible uh, social intervention that we could do. So it's it seems like if it were well framed, it could be something that could get done in America. But I think it's not on the radar right now. So uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't predict it for the, at the moment. OK, well, that's uh, our episode for today. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up there. Yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.